Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I noticed that Timothy gave Isaac all the names in that passage. (laughs) Great job, bud. Uh, My name is Evan. Uh, I'm the associate pastor here, and uh, I'd like to add my voice just to the uh, welcomes that you've already received. We are delighted that you are with us on this Lord's Day. Uh, We are going to consider his word this morning. So a little over two hours away from 316 Red Mill Road, where we sit, is uh, the battlefield of Gettysburg. And uh, how many of you have ever toured that battlefield? Yeah, you know, anytime you see something where there was like the massive loss of life, anytime we see lives being given, we immediately jump to trying to figure out what it meant. And uh, when you see 160,000 people locked in battle and 50,000 dead, uh, it becomes very, very sobering. And if you've ever walked that field, first of all, you just begin to see just the scope of it over a number of days and just the, the geography and everything. And uh, maybe you go to a place that would one day be uh, known as Pickett's Charge, and, and you stand at the tree line. It was said when 13,000 uh, Confederate soldiers stepped forward out of that line, the Union troops, like a moan went out. And it wasn't of despair. It was just like the sheer pageantry and scope of it. And uh, then you walk that field, and you're just kind of aware that, like, people bled, you know, and died. You know, guys, you know, like me, who wrote letters and poetry home and had vocations. And and, uh, then you see it from the other side, from behind the stone wall, and you're looking down. And and as you leave, it almost feels like there are ghosts. It's just kind of a a melancholy. And, And if you've been there, you kind of know what that means. Because whenever life is poured out, we try to figure out some sort of meaning to it. I think that's what President Lincoln did in those immortal words, notice the Gettysburg Address, where he said, we can't hallow this ground, right? The men did this. But then he, he speaks of dedicating themselves to a task. Because, and then the statement that these dead shall not have died in vain. You know, when somebody sacrifices themselves, what, what can a sacrifice do? Well, it can hallow a place where you're just aware that a sacrifice has been given. Uh, it can perhaps deal a blow to an enemy. And it, maybe it will motivate the, sa- the survivors, the fellows of those people to say, I, I don't want this sacrifice to be in vain, so I'm going to redouble my efforts. 
You know, how many of our stories that we, we watch and tell include sacrifice? You know, Tadashi runs back into a burning building. Obi-Wan, you know, lets himself be struck down so he can constantly be with Luke. Boromir shields a hobbit from arrows. John Miller tells Private Ryan, earn this, earn it. And then those who are left, they, they brush away tears and they redouble their efforts because they don't want the sacrifice to be in vain. And that may be, it may not be in vain, but they're still lost to us. My point here is, Jesus' death isn't like that. This is not just another senseless tragedy that, that we have to be wrestling to find the meaning of. It's not in that category of wipe away the tear and then move on, uh, you know, trying to make sure that his sacrifice wasn't in vain. Yeah, Jesus didn't allow that. His death was tragic and it was unjust, but it was also planned by the foreknowledge of God. And, here's the kicker, it was undone by the resurrection. The resurrection was huge in Jesus' mind. He could not have gone through it if he did not know what was coming. It is so big in the mind of Jesus that he actually kind of thought in terms of before resurrection and after resurrection. In one instance with his disciples, he had just been transfigured, that time where his glory showed, and he came down off the mountain, and he told his disciples, don't tell anyone about this until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So in Jesus, it is just a watershed time. We've been parked in the book of Mark for uh, seven weeks or so. And uh, if you've been tracking with us, you heard three different times that Jesus predicted his death. Now, when he predicted it, it kept on getting more and more graphic, all the way from he'll be betrayed and rejected, handed over. But then he started talking about finally, you know, about being spit upon and flogged and killed So the bad news got worse and worse when he explained it. But the good news stayed the same. Every time he said, and after three days, the Son of Man, he will rise. When we read the good news, as we just heard today um, by by Isaac and Timothy, it's so simple. It's just eight verses. And I find it really, really attractive and, and plausible you know, eight verses just says, he is risen, he's not here, see the place where they laid him, and then some instructions. It's just brief and to the point. And if you know the author of Mark, uh, John Mark is writing this down, but it's, but it's Peter, impetuous Peter. And it's kind of like Peter says, you know, he tells about it, he's here, not really afraid, and then he's like, and those women, they were afraid. We were all afraid. We didn't know what to do with this. And John Mark says, anything else? He's like, nope, that's it, I'm good. It's just, Jesus doesn't ever explain his resurrection. He leaves that to his followers. And Brandon prayed from 1 Corinthians 15, where one of uh, Jesus' late followers, Paul, just begins to try to unfold what the resurrection means. But Jesus leaves that to us, to to think about it. And, And most of the Christian life is really wrestling about what the resurrection means to us. So I'd like to do a bit of that with us today. Today we're going to, instead of like zooming in on those, that chapter 16, we're going to zoom out just a little bit and stay in Mark, and we're going to look at the significance of the resurrection in Jesus' mind. If I were to uh, 
hold up this. Uh, those are, this is a check. Okay, Generation Z, this is a paper check. They write on it. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a check. You know, Jesus wrote checks in his ministry. He said he was going to do certain things. Now, I want to ask you the question, how do we know that this check can be cashed? I would say that the signature on the check is the resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to go back in the words of Jesus and look at what Jesus said, my death accomplishes this. And then I'm going to make this argument, just to suggest that today, if Jesus indeed raised from the dead, then these things too are true. So we're going to look at three of them. Now, uh, kids, you're about to see your first point, all right? You're going to see a, a symbol up there, and that's where we're going to write it down. Now, just a note, kids, I do need to warn you. On your sheet, you'll see a checkered flag and then a little guy holding a cross. That's actually homework for you, okay? That's not going to be in the message, so you can just put a little star by it and take that home. So the check that Jesus wrote here, he frees us. He frees us. And you're going to see a little symbol of shackles. Mark 10, verse 45, has been called the mission statement of Jesus. He says, this is why I came. That's his mission statement. You'll see that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I want to zoom in on that word ransom. Now, Patrick last week did a great job in explaining that. When we see that some hostages have been taken in the news, what we expect to read next is, okay, what are they asking? What is the ransom? So we understand that a ransom includes captivity, and it includes payment, usually a lot of payment. Even though Jesus doesn't say who received the ransom or even who we were enslaved to, it's worth asking so that we know what it means to be free. So we are all needing a ransom. We're in captivity, and we need to be released by some payment. And Jesus is clear, the payment is his life. What is it that we needed to be free from? Well, first of all, the more... Well, let me just say this. It's not Satan, okay? Satan doesn't own us. He's not God. He didn't make us. He doesn't have a right to us. But we were in bondage to something. To who or to what? Now, if you have a, a copy of scriptures in front of you, I would invite you to turn to Galatians 3, verse 13. And if you don't, just listen. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So the first thing that we need to be ransomed from is the law. Galatians 3 there says that Christ ransomed us from the curse of the law, redeemed us. This refers to the moral law of God. So the moral law of God is something that is clearly good. However, because we cannot keep it, it puts us under a curse. And anybody who has tried to keep the moral law of God, even just say the, the Ten Commandments, quickly realizes that it's somewhat of a losing game. Now, if you're going to play this game, the rules are very simple. You have to keep the law completely, you've got to keep it perfectly, and you have to do it with perfect motives. So that means never violating your conscience, never coloring the truth, never being jealous about something that you don't have, always honoring your parents. I could say kids, but all of us, honoring our parents with our words and our actions, always giving God first place in your life, not putting anything in front of him, 
Always submitting both your body and your soul to his designs for you. Giving away your possessions to love others. You know, if you try to do this, you're going to realize that it is a losing game. And you could just labor under your entire life until finally you realize, like, I, I can't do this. And you may say, you know what, I'm just going to throw it away. I'm not even going to try. But pretty soon your conscience and the consequences of it are going to catch up with you. And, and so we are in bondage to the law, the moral law of God. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Galatians, Ephesians, or just listen. In bondage to the law, chapter 1, verse 7 of Ephesians says this. In him we have redemption, being bought from the slave market through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The second thing that we are in bondage to is the guilt of our sin. Now, we need forgiveness. This is not just like, I feel guilty. This is objective guilt. And notice the word for sin here is trespasses. And, you know, when we see a sign that says no trespassing, there's normally a chain up or something. And if you jump over that chain or crawl under the chain, you are now guilty of trespassing. Now, in ancient times, if you trespassed and you somehow hurt somebody's property or somebody's rights, you had to pay remuneration. So you went in there and you damaged their property, you'd have to give it back. But also, there was a, a, an objective sense in which you were guilty. And you actually had to give a, a sacrifice. Now, when the injured party is God, there's nothing you can give him to, to pay remuneration. And that's why he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In other words, that guilt had to be covered by a sacrifice. Jesus, his blood, is supposed to like take it away. It says that there is forgiveness as our trespasses. It's not covered over. It is forgiven completely. So we are in bondage to the law. We are in bondage to guilt. We're also in bondage to the power of sin. One more verse I'd like you to flip on over to is Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Which says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. So we're in bondage to the law of God, we're in bondage to our guilt, and we're also in bondage to various passions or lusts and pleasures. You ever wonder why you don't live up to your best ideals? why you are not your best self, where you purpose in your heart, I'm going to do better. Uh, I'm going to not hurt anybody again. I'm not going to do this self-destructive stuff. And yet you continue to do it. Things that in your heart you know is wrong. And then you find out perhaps that God says it is wrong. Or you you just can't stop doing wrong. That's because we are slaves to our passions and our pleasures. And Jesus said, that's exactly what I came to free you from. There's an illustration that one of my professors gave about being slaves to sin that just makes a lot of sense. Before Jesus set free us free, we were tenants to a landlord. And the landlord was sin. And so sin would come to us before Jesus and say, pay up. And every single time, I had to pay up. I had no choice. He was my landlord. When I believed in Christ, 
I said to have died to sin. And so it's like, I am not under that tenancy anymore. I died to this landlord. The, the lease is broken, and now I've got an entirely new landlord. Now, that doesn't mean that the landlord's sin isn't going to walk up to you and say, pay up. But you can say, hey, I died. New landlord. Get lost. I'm not your tenant anymore. Now, you could pay him if you wanted to, but you don't have to anymore. And so we are free from being slaves to sin because of Jesus. So the question that I'm asking today is Jesus made this promise. He wrote this check about ransoming you. You are free from sin. I bought you out of that with my life. And so the question is, how do we know he can cash that check? Well, the answer to that biblically is because of the resurrection. He is risen. He's not here. See where they lay him. So at that moment when that grave was empty, that was God saying, he can cash this check. This will happen. You are ransomed. Second, Mark chapter 14, verse 24. If you were with us on Friday, you were there when we took communion or the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to look at Jesus' words in verse 24 of Mark 14. The second check that Jesus writes is that he lays out a new relationship with God. So he says, number one, I free you. Number two, I give you a new relationship with God. And he said this is my covenant, blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So Jesus claimed that his death did something, that it sealed a covenant. A covenant is an agreement between a couple of parties. And in this case, it was something that God agreed with. You see, we don't get to negotiate this agreement, just accept it or reject it. So agreement is not quite the word that we'd be looking for because it kind of suggests that we can negotiate. Maybe a way of looking at this is like that of a will, So if you're the beneficiary of a will, you have a benefactor who is handing down the terms to a beneficiary, and that person can either say, I accept it, I accept it, or I reject it. A will is unchangeable. You can't go in and say, "Mm, I don't care for the terms of this will, you know, and scratch it out and put your initials. No, you can't do that. You're not allowed to. But this will is going to dictate what relationship you have with the benefactor. If you like uh, big words and precise definitions, here's one for you. A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that lays out the conditions of their relationship. The covenant that we're speaking of is the Old Testament where Moses received a covenant at Sinai where God just based out, laid out the conditions of his relationship with Israel. He, he dictated everything. Their worship, their way of life, everything. The nation had difficulty with, with keeping God's terms, and so God said, I am going to give a new covenant. Jesus, when he spoke, this is my blood of the covenant, he is speaking of this new covenant. No longer the Mosaic covenant that Israel could not keep, but a new covenant. And the relationship that we have with the one who handed it to us is faith in the work of Jesus. His blood poured out for many. Jesus didn't make this idea up. The prophets spoke of it all the time. The prophet Jeremiah, who was 600 years before Jesus, 
wrote of it extensively and described this new covenant that Jesus says, I brought this in. You'll see it on the screen. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So this covenant right here defines the new relationship that Jesus lays out because of his blood. First of all, it is founded on the forgiveness of sins. So these sins are no longer passed over by sacrifices that are done in the temple. There's a sacrifice that once of all removed it. This is what Jesus' death did. So without this forgiveness, this is kind of like the building block of this new covenant. Without forgiveness, you couldn't have any other of these benefits. But another benefit is the capability of obeying. And the only reason we can obey is because God grants the indwelling spirit within us. You'll see it in the verses there on the screen that it will be written, the law will be written in their minds and on their hearts. Now the law given to Israel was written on tablets and scrolls, but God says, I'm going to take it and I'm going to put it within you. It's going to be on your heart. What this is speaking of is a cleansed heart, a renewed heart that is going to lead to a holiness of life. This is the opposite of what another prophet called a hard heart. Ezekiel said that God would give you a heart of flesh rather than a flesh heart of stone. A stone, you can etch on it, but, but it, it's not impressionable. And so when God gives you his spirit, your heart becomes soft and you're able to receive his word. And so obedience flows out of it. So if you are ever able to hear God's word and obey it, it is because of the Holy Spirit that is actually allowing you to receive it. And so one of the benefits of the new covenant is forgiveness. Another is obedience. And then the, the result of all this is, and you saw the picture of the handshake, a new relationship with God. He says, I'll be their God and they will be my people. So that's a result of his forgiveness and transformation and the spirit. And so the question is, Jesus wrote a check here. He says, I broke you free of guilt and sin and the law. I signed a covenant with my blood. How do we know that he can do it? He is not here. He has risen. See the place where they laid him. The check has been shot, signed and cashed. And so we have been freed, and we have a relationship with God. And then finally we have a reunion. He returns and he gathers us. So kids, you'll see the point of a compass. Up, down, left, right. They'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he'll send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This prediction that Jesus makes in chapter 13 of Mark is a little bit ironic because this whole time he's been repeatedly predicting his death and his humiliation in, in the worst kinds of ways. And, he, and he's just about to go into his Passion Week. He's about to experience it. But this doesn't rattle him because he also knows that there's going to be a time of great power and honor. The prediction that Jesus makes here comes from one of Jesus' favorite passages. 
I, I, think if you, I think if you ask Jesus, like one of his favorite passages, for the number of times that he uses the terminology, the son of man, it might be Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And in those two verses, this is where Jesus gets this idea of him being the son of man. And in this passage, you have one that is going to be glorified. There are clouds, and there's a kingdom, and glory, and a people. And all of those things are claims to deity. Jesus clearly claimed this. You know, when it says that he's the son of man is going to come in clouds, everybody knew what clouds meant. Clouds meant deity. Even the, even the Romans knew what clouds meant. The, the guy riding the chariot of clouds with rain and thunder spewing out of it, that is a god. The high priest that Jesus stood before, he didn't need, uh, he knew what clouds meant. Jesus said, you'll see him in clouds, the, the son of man coming in clouds, and, and the man rent his clothes in, in a way of like expressing that blasphemy had been said, and he condemned Jesus. When Jesus was transformed on the mountain in chapter 9, it says that a cloud came down, and from that cloud came a voice. There's no question who that voice was from. That was from God. But now we see who is in the clouds. Jesus is riding in the clouds. That is his promise, that if he is going to be raised from the dead, he will return in glory, and his full deity and power will be on display. That's his promise. So Jesus says, hey, I am going to return. That's the promise. But he's also going to gather us. That portion of it is our hope. Our hope is that we will be gathered to him. There will be a great reunion. Jesus is like a magnet to the people that he has chosen. The Bible is used to speaking about the end times when all the people of God would be gathered to Jerusalem. But Jesus doesn't say Jerusalem. He says, they're going to come to me. All the promises of God are now focused in the person of Jesus Christ. He is highly revered or glorified. You'll see some language there about the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven, and that just emphasizes that this pull is universal. It is not going to be to the nation of Israel only. It's going to spill out to the four points of the globe and to 316 Red Mill Road. So how do we know that he's going to return and gather us? How are we going to have a reunion? You got it. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. I'd like to take just a second. So we have three promises of God. I'd like to take just a second and, and talk to you. What if, what if you say, I get this, okay? I understand that you're saying that if this resurrection, this, I mean, because let's face it. If a man rises from the dead, that's a miracle. That's extraordinary, and if it is possible, if there's that much power to undo death, then that means that some of these other miracles that we read about in the Bible, a guy being f- swallowed by a great fish or, or water being split, if, if a guy being raised from the dead is possible, then those other things are child's play. Okay? But what if you kind of suspect that his followers were just trying to make sure that this sacrifice was not in vain? They're casting about going like, I, I don't know what to make of this. I don't want this to be in vain, so let's make up this story. Can I speak to your question for a moment? And I'm not going to argue because that's really not fair because I'm up here and you can't reply to me, okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you some evidences that I've found very helpful. Uh, This actually comes from 
a man who uh, taught a Bible study here a while back. His name was Timothy Paul Jones. And he just provided me with an evidence that I have not been able to shake, and it's been very helpful for, for my entire family. So here's the point. The evidence of the Bible is not primarily scientific. In the term that you can like take it and you can like put it under a microscope and, and replicate it and, and posit theories and, and so forth. It, it will not submit to the scientific method. That's because it is primarily his, historical. So you're right. You can't go to the garden tomb and prove that Jesus Christ is not there. You can't go and find DNA evidence and, and run samples. You can't uh, prove that at all. But the truth is, we can't even prove that Abraham Lincoln was born in Illinois. You can't go to a cabin and prove that. You may not even be able to prove your grandparents. But it is plausible because it is historical. We may take a historical figure like Alexander the Great that everybody obviously knows that this was a historical figure. But you can't prove him either. So you almost see the cynicism that would insist that the biblical record, like the resurrection, should have to submit to the scientific method. No, what we actually have to answer here is that it is plausible as history. And as with any claim of historicity, you have to pass some plausibility tests. So you compare the resurrection against the account of, say, Alexander the Great. So he is totally accepted, and I'm going to put those plausibility tests on the screen. He's totally accepted, yet he only has five witnesses, and all of those are fragments. And the entire count of his history was not even written until 350 years after his death. So those witnesses were long dead and couldn't even refute it. But now I want you to compare it to the resurrection, which masses all five plausibility tests. There are multiple sources, four eyewitnesses recorded, and they are recording what hundreds of people saw. They have independent details, so they all have like a different perspective, just as if you and I looked at an accident from different sides, we would, we would explain it perhaps differently, and we'd highlight different things, yet all of them had major things the same, namely that he rose on the third day, and that Mary Magdalene was the first witness. These witnesses had nothing to gain from, the, from this account, except for persecution, in fact, they had every reason not to perpetuate this and just kind of fade into the background, but instead they went forward and they died as martyrs. They had no reason to name Mary Magdalene as the first witness because in that time, a woman's testimony was not even accepted in court. And so putting her forth as the first witness wouldn't have even made sense. If I was going to write a story about the Middle Ages, I would make up some names like, I don't know, George and Godric, and these sound like good middle-aged names, but if you kind of drill into a particular feudal kingdom, you wouldn't know which names were used there. Yet, archaeology shows that the names that populate these accounts are names that were absolutely the most popular names in that region of Judah. And so, the plausibility of this account has converted more than a small number of skeptics. People who set out to say, I'm going to poke holes in this thing, and at the end say, this is absolutely plausible. And if this is true, if this is plausible, then it becomes part of our history. And we all live in it. You know, the thing is with history, it doesn't require me to say it's true for it to be true. But you ignore it at your peril. So Jesus did not intend for his death to not be in vain, guys. 
He intended to be alive and to come back in glory. Jesus intended his, his death to do these spiritual things for us, to free us. He intended for it to, to seal a covenant. He intended it to show that he was going to come back and return. And so each one of us need to reckon with this, this new relationship with God. And what I'm praying today is that if you are a believer, that you will say the resurrection is, is proof that all the spiritual benefits are mine. And if you say, I am not there yet, I would pray that you would wrestle with the historicity of this because if it is true, then it is amazing news indeed. And if, uh, if you say, I'm kind of at that point, I, I'd like to know more about this. I would say, first of all, uh, the book of Mark is able to be read in an afternoon if you really settle into it. Read it. Find out what you're supposed to be affirming. Find out what history is. Uh, But as you read it, approach it humbly and say, I want to meet this character. I want to meet Jesus. And before long, you're going to find out that he is going to ask you a question that he asks his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And if you say, I think that either you're a lunatic or you're the Lord... If you say yes, then he's going to ask you another question. Come, follow me. And we have to answer that question and say yes. I think the thing that excites me about today is that the resurrection day is the possibility of becoming every one of our resurrection day. And if we accept it, it would be, for the first time, a very happy Easter indeed. Let's pray. Father, you wrote some uh, big checks in the, mystery, in the ministry of Jesus. And we've got to ask ourselves, how do we know that we've been forgiven? How do we know that we've been made clean? How do we know we'll go to heaven? How do we know that we've been redeemed? And the answer always comes back, you have been raised. The tomb has been opened. Nothing can change our hope in you. And so, Father, I pray today that every heart here would reckon with this, that we would have our faith strengthened or that our faith would be born today. Lord, I pray that there would be some here that would receive the forgiveness of their sins for the first time. Or if there's somebody who follows Jesus and they feel like they are in the grip that they would put themselves under the name of Jesus and realize that he has bought them from that. They don't have to live under it anymore. That you've given them the Holy Spirit and softened their hearts. That they can actually break free. and That you have given them a strong promise that they, if they just accept it, that it will become their history. So Lord, I ask that you would do your work today. Thank you for your amazing gifts. We pray this in Jesus' name.